Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. My guest this week is Dennis McDonough in his first interview since leaving the White House. So Dennis McDonough was Barack Obama's chief of staff. He had the name among some of Obama's Obama. He is a guy who served on the National Security Council, has a lot of foreign policy experience, but in the back half of Obama's presidency was his chief of staff, his closest advisor, and was also considered to represent his style of thinking, his style of management better than anybody who had served in that role before in this White House. So this is a fascinating conversation. The reason I wanted to have Dennis on the show is that I wanted to talk about the parts of running the White House, running the federal government, running the presidency that don't make the headlines. I wanted to talk about administration, management. How do you think about the the pieces of federal management that are, are, are humming in the background, that if they're not done well, create real problems. But if they are done well, people don't really notice. So this is a very in-the-weeds discussion of how the government actually works, what it actually does, and what the role of the president of the chief of staff is, how they did this in the Obama White House, what looks like it's happening in the Trump White House, and, and what the potential consequences of that might be. As you'll hear, Dennis is a very thoughtful, measured guy, does not get out over his skis. So I, I think this is a this is a very worthwhile podcast to listen to. I think this is a pretty good take on these issues. One request this week, a different one than I normally ask you for. Actually, it's not really a quest. It is a plug. So my colleague, Todd Vanderwerf, is the the best cultural critic I know. He's Vox's cultural critic at large. He is a genius about how pop culture reflects America's subconscious, thinks very hard about its technical aspects, how it's put together, how shots are framed, how music is constructed, and is also very good in its broader meta narratives and, and what it says about us at this time. He has launched an interview show, which is fantastic. I've listened to it. I'm going to be on an upcoming episode. It's called I Think You're Interesting. In this case, Todd thinks you're interesting. His first guest was Ryan Murphy, who created Glee, created American Horror Story, created the great O.J. Simpson series that won all the awards and got all the attention. Murphy is a fascinating, fascinating guy. And, and the way he thinks about pop culture is really worth listening to. Their, their interview made a lot of news for some of the stories that Murphy told when it came out. But in addition to being newsworthy, it's also just a very smart way of thinking about these issues. So if, if you're like me and you love pop culture or you love culture, but maybe you don't get as much time to think deeply about it as, as you wish, this is a really, really good podcast for you. So it is, I think you're interesting. You can find it wherever you find your fine podcasts. And with all that said, here is Dennis McDonough. Dennis McDonough, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jess. Good to be here. So I, I wanted to have you on because there is a part of the Trump administration right now and administrations generally that I think doesn't get enough attention. We're, we're good in the media at covering the big story. Will the healthcare bill pass? What is happening with Russia? We're not very good at covering the day-to-day, -day, how do you run the vast 
organism that is the federal government. And that is happening, or it is not happening, but one of, one of the two is going on, and it's something you have a lot of experience with. So I guess I wanted to start here. You worked, obviously, very closely with President Obama. After having watched a president up close for a long time, what would you say the job of the presidency is? It's a good question, and, and thanks for having me on the show. Before responding to your specific question, let me just say that. I mean, I think competence has a quality all its own when you're running the government. And when the country and when the institutions around the government believe that you're competently executing on your goals, then you're going to be in good shape and things you're going to generate momentum and benefit from that momentum. When you lose it, it's very hard to get back. And we had some experience with that in October 2013. And we can talk a little bit about that well, later. When you say October 2013, what are you referencing? I'm referencing the rollout of healthcare.gov. Right. You know, I've expiated my guilt on that question. And, and I think now because of the way we competently executed the, the rescue of that, we now have had several open enrollment seasons of the most transparent healthcare pricing tool that this country's ever known. And so because of the competent execution, we got it back. But so competence has a quality all its own, and if you lose it, it's hard to get back. But the job of the president is to lay out the objectives clearly for the federal government, to establish new policies for that government that impact uh, citizens and taxpayers, and to make the case to the public about the importance of those policies. And competence is sewn into each of those three objectives. And, you know, those policies range from national defense to counterterrorism to healthcare policy to tax and fiscal policy. And the goal of the president is to, the challenge I think for the president is not get drawn off those objectives, his objectives into cul-de-sacs or rabbit holes that just take up time and, and attention and energy. And so success in each of those objectives really demands not only smarts and stick-to-itiveness and attention to detail, but intense discipline. How much is it a management job? How much time does the president actually spend managing the staff, managing cabinet secretaries, working out personnel disagreements yeah. between people, just the normal stuff that the leader of an organization tends to do. How much is the presidency an equivalent position to CEO? I want to be careful here because I, I know one president and I know him well and I saw how he ran this government. So I, I want to be careful not to overstate what whether my findings are true across history, mm -hmm. although I've done a lot of reading, obviously. But the job has big management components. And I think as a chief of staff, you're hoping to minimize the time the president spends on management challenges outside basic top-line management objectives to include setting the direction of the organization, setting the culture of the organization, you know, ensuring that the culture is one driven by data and facts and preparation. And so those are management intangibles. You know, my job, at, and the president spends a lot of time on those things, and he sets the tone for those uh, kind of across the government. Um, 
I would have considered it my job to keep away from him personnel challenges unless they were significant enough to be impacting on the other objectives of the government. So there's a big personnel chunk of this when it comes to selecting his people. Some of the most interesting examples of that, of course, are a selection of Supreme Court justice, a selection of his cabinet members. But once the place gets running, you want to make sure that the president only gets involved in those kinds of fights um, if he needs to. And if he's got a you know, well-empowered, well-established, and transparent team around him, uh, he can. So recognizing that, that you only served one president, if the American people had asked you afterwards when they were looking to hire another one, putting all candidates aside, what qualities does a successful candidate for this job need to have? What should we be looking for in an applicant? What would you have told them? Hmm. Well, I'm reading an interesting book right now, the new... Uh, biography of President Grant. And uh, you're not you're not done with presidents by this point. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of them and a lot of books. Although I'm starting to wonder if, you know, this much writing for this long, are there enough words in the English language, you know, to to keep generating new ideas, but we'll find out about that. You know, basically what the thesis of that book says is that this guy was so well read that he had a leadership quality and decision-making quality, unique and perhaps, you know, among the best of all the presidents. And Ulysses Grant. Yeah. I did not realize that. And so it's interesting, you know, basically it's a revisionist thesis that says this guy's not been given his due, his just desserts. So both by what I've read in that book and others, but also what I've uh, witnessed from President Obama is uh, you want somebody who is constantly reading, as I say, what's coming to him, but not only what's coming to him, going out and finding other stuff. And I tried early to try to keep up with President Obama's reading, but he's a voracious reader. When did President Obama read? All the time, to include late into the night. You know, he's a night owl, as he's already said publicly a lot, but he was up till two, three every morning. And I couldn't keep up with that. <laughs> and he's reading everything, you know, you send in a binder of info to him, it came out the next day, every day. So he's reading what's being sent to him, but he's also being aggressive about going to find his own reading. I thought the back and forth in the Times Magazine about his reading practices with the Times book critic Kakutani was pretty interesting. But so one, I think you want the president to be well, uh, well read and constantly updating on that. Two is I think you want discipline. And then three, I think you want openness to argument, right? You don't need a ideologue. In there, you need uh, somebody who's ready to learn new ideas, driven by powers of argument and uh, data and some kind of transparent argumentation. And I saw that every day, uh, whether that was in the sit room or elsewhere. So uh, to, to bring this in a leading direction, uh, as my podcast often does, so I've been talking to people about this question a lot recently, to trying to think about what qualities Trump has or does not have, what qualities are needed, what he'll have to develop. And... An argument I've heard that felt persuasive to me, having reported intensely on, on your administration, having done reading of my own, running an organization myself now, is that the presidency at a fundamental level is a job that has to absorb, categorize, structure, and then decide on a lot of information. That the federal bureaucracy, among other things, is a massive information gathering and production 
machine. The voters are sending information signals at all times. The media is sending information signals at all times. And, and the president sits atop this vast amount of data coming at him. And there are people whose job it is to, to structure that information into something usable. The National Economics Council, the Council of Economic Advisors, the National Security Council, the chief of staff. But that on some fundamental level, what the president has to do is decide which information to believe which argument to rate highly, which advisor to listen to on a set of topics that is, that is genuinely dizzying. I used to be part of some of the reporter roundtables you all had. And the thing that always struck me the most about Obama was how much he knew about how many topics, not any one, but he would be in the topic that I knew about, the economy or healthcare, and he'd be pretty much expert level. And then he'd be talking about something completely different that I would have no idea how you would be able to follow both of those simultaneously. And, and that infovor quality seems important to me. Now, it can, it can get into a micromanaging space. And the fact that you have a lot of information doesn't mean you'll make good decisions with it. But the thing that has concerned me about Trump is his informational habits are very undisciplined. He believes sources of information that are very weak, like Infowars. He sits up in the morning watching cable news, which even at its best, I think is not the primary way you should learn about American politics. And I'm curious how you think about that, how you reflect on that. Are, are there ways for him to be taking shortcuts that are maybe more useful than, than I'm seeing? Because to, to all you said about discipline and reading, you can probably get by with less of that if you are just able to drive towards the right information and then make clear decisions based on it. But I'm not sure he has that. Well, it's hard. You know, it's hard for me. I've not met him and I'm consuming a lot of the same things you are. And so I want to be careful not to come to any uh, conclusions or, or even to spend my first time out here publicly since I left the White House appearing to be overly critical or anything. But I, I think your officer, I was always struck by your observation as well, which is Basically, somebody comes into the Oval uh, or goes into the Oval uh, to make a presentation of the president. That's the most important part of their day, if not week or month or even year. And it's important because the time that person's put into the preparation of that, it's important because of the stakes involved in the question. It's important because you're speaking to the president of the United States. But he has, the president has, you know, eight or 10 such moments every day where somebody's making those uh, very consequential arguments to him. And so what I witnessed from President Obama is that he wanted to give due attention and deference to each of those arguments and each presentation, as you say, of data, of information. And so I was always struck by that. And the fact that he could go from significant issue to significant issue oftentimes between them with relatively little time, but also completely different topics struck me as remarkable. And I think you, you have to stay up as late as he did stay up every night to make sure that you are ready for it. And I think he took that very personally. In terms of sources of information, President Obama was very insistent that he also be able to get his own sources of information. That's why it's really important to him to maintain his email and BlackBerry, and that's why it was very important to him to have the residents, you know, wireless, uh, both for his family and for him, 
so that he had his own access to, you know, going to find his own information. And that's where I, that was the hardest thing to keep up with him. He'd find new Ezra Klein arguments every night to, you know, to berate us with the next morning. So the goal as his staff and as his team is not to try to know what he's reading. It's to be up to speed enough so that when you get into debate that you're ready for that debate. It's hard for me to tell exactly where President Trump gets all of his data because it seems to me that people in the press and then people around town here intuit from what he says where he got what he believes or what he said. So I don't think we really know. And I guess what I would say is what the American public should expect is that he's spending the kind of time to prepare for his decisions on issues, commensurate with the impact it will have on the American people's lives. You know, that's a question he has to answer for himself too. If you run into a citizen on the street who is impacted by a decision you made, do you feel like you could argue to that p person that, you know what, I know this impact on you has been significant, but I spent a long time really thinking about it and considering the alternatives. And I know it impacted you in a very negative way, but the national interest is advanced in the following way. Rather than saying, you know, my gut told me that this was the best thing to do. That's why what I witnessed from the president is President Obama at the time was trying to get deep into the issue so that he could defend it because he was going to get 10 letters every night, not to mention probing questions from the press probing phone calls from members of Congress, meetings from members of Congress. And he wanted to be able to assure people that he had given commensurate attention to the question to assure them that it was not willy-nilly because people are impacted by the decisions the President of the United States makes. One of the fascinating things I've now heard from, from a number of sources is that members of the administration and members of Congress are trying very hard to get themselves booked on Morning Joe and Fox and Friends. Because that is a, a direct line. And, and somebody made the case to me that, hey, look, at least this administration's consideration process is happening in a public, transparent way. Anybody can turn on Fox and Friends. Anybody can turn on Morning Joe. It, it struck me as a uh, perhaps good but discomforting point. Well, uh, that, that, I, don't, I, don't, I think that's an inappropriate use of the word transparent. <laughs> I, I don't think it's public. But... It doesn't strike me as transparent. It strikes me as quite considerably opaque. That's an interesting distinction. Say, say more about the, the distinction between public and transparent. Well, because I think transparent goes to what are, what are the factors that are informing the decision-making process for the administration. And I think the same applies, by the way, to the process of this new health care bill on the Hill, where... The argumentation at the moment really boils down to a political argument from the Republicans that they're making to other Republicans, which says, you either vote for this or you'll be responsible for the Affordable Care Act staying in law forever. So a transparent process would be an open, transparent process where they argued out why they're making the decisions they're making, right? Why is it that 
they've made this decision about repealing the tax on tanning salons, repealing the tax on CEOs, insurance companies, CEOs making more than $500,000 a year. What is the argumentation for that decision? Because that decision has a pretty profound impact because basically repealing that tax on these super wealthy insurance executives means that seniors on Medicaid are at greater risk of losing their Medicaid. There's no public discussion of that among the Republicans right now. Democrats are trying to force it. In fact, it appears that they tried to force it all night. And what strikes me as a profoundly truncated debate on a pretty profound set of policy choices that they're making. So is that debate public? It's entirely public. Is it transparent as to why the Republicans are choosing the, the data that informs, the arguments that inform, and the impacts that inform the, the policy choices that the Republicans have made in that bill? I don't see that right now. Not from the proponents of the bill, uh, and as much as the opponents of the bill are trying to get them to to elucidate that stuff, they're just they're just not agreeing to it because what they're saying is, look, current system doesn't work. You can either be for this or for the current system staying. It's fundamentally a political argument. I think it's really weak. Let me ask you about how the rest of the federal government is run. Yeah. So there are the top line issues that, if you asked a reasonably well informed news consumer, what is the president worrying about right now? They would give you a set of answers, terrorism, healthcare, the economy, jobs, that kind of thing, making America great again. And I think people would get a lot of that right. But then the, the government in the background is doing an almost unimaginable amount. There are things that we can't be told about, missions happening in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. so the sort of sexy invisible, we'll call it. And then there's just the daily work of administering Obamacare, say, years after it's been implemented, the daily work of everything that happens outside of the Commerce Department, the oceanographers. Now, obviously, the, the president is not personally overseeing every weather data administering function that, that the government has. But what is the relationship between maybe in this case, the White House, not the president personally, and the smooth functioning of that broader governmental apparatus. Because when problems emerge, when the, the Veterans Administration begins providing poor health care, that bubbles up and, and it's blamed on the president, and I think on some level correctly. But what is the daily relationship between the White House and trying to make sure and check in and be measuring whether or not these component parts of the bureaucracy it ultimately leads are working well? So. The daily interaction between the White House and the agencies, this is where the policy councils of the White House really come into play. The NSC is really supposed to be the White House component that deals closely with the national security agencies. There's defense, state, you know, treasury in certain instances, obviously, energy in certain instances, the intelligence community and so forth. NEC with all the uh, uh, economic agencies. DPC with the domestic policy agencies and, you know, their energy, obviously, education, HUD and so forth. So there's a lot of interaction between the members of those councils and the agencies. And it's not just a question of the White House being confident that those agencies are 
performing as against the objectives the president set out or, you know, and also conducting their business in an appropriate and, you know, upstanding way. It's also those agencies saying, hey, we could use the SWAT of the White House to help us advance the following issue on the Hill. Or we need, the, you know, the White House, we, we could sure use the, you know, the spokesman today uh, to lift up this issue because it's really important to the president's objectives, the secretary's objectives. So it's a two-way street. That is to say, how can we lift up and help you what you're doing? And them also saying, or us also saying to them, you know, are you investing the time and the resource of your agency on the objectives that we think are the most important? So there's a lot of back and forth every day at the staff level that's working that. What the president chose to do is emulating something that uh, Prime Minister Blair did towards the end of his uh, tenure as prime minister, which was he had quarterly meetings with his cabinet members. President Obama, then we called them cabinet engagement meetings. And basically, the agenda for the meeting was the president's. That is to say, the president set the agenda. But he's meeting quarterly. It ended up not being, we, we didn't hit that objective every quarter that we saw every cabinet secretary every quarter. But it's about, you know, intended to be an hour meeting. Sometimes it'd be two hours. Sometimes it'd be a little less than an hour. But the president wanted to hear in that meeting, he would have his issues that he wanted raised, but then he wanted to hear from the cabinet secretary, what is it about what's happening in your agency that A, you think deserves my attention because you think somebody's performing very well and advancing something interesting, something that you think is going poorly, because he said, I do not want to learn about a problem in your agency in the newspaper, because if I learn about it in the newspaper and you, we've had this meeting and you've not told me, then somebody's ass is going to get chewed. But if you warn me about it now, then let's get to work on this thing and make, make sure that we can fix it. So the goal out of that wasn't for the president to take a bunch of to-dos, a bunch of do-outs from a cabinet secretary to say, I need you to do X, Y, and Z. But the goal was to give that cabinet secretary assurance and through that, his agency assurance that the president of the United States was cognizant of what they're doing, valued what they're doing, felt responsible for what they're doing, and therefore felt accountable for what they're doing. And in so doing, you're not then going to blame execution on somebody else, right? Provided they've come to you with the problems. If they hadn't, well, then, we've got to, then we do have an issue and we need to resolve it. What were the kinds of things that would bubble up in those meetings? The thing that came up time and again was technology. Time and again, technology procurement, technology execution. Now, procurement, we didn't get into procurement issues. Those are issues to be made by the individual secretaries and their agencies. But when they encountered problems and said, geez, you know, we, we are having a problem, DOD and VA continue to have a problem of making their, their services completely smooth for transition. That is to say, somebody leaving DOD can get all of his data over to VA so the VA then picks that person up and says, we know precisely your status on the day you left DOD because they just handed off all their information to us. All right? It's a classic example. Healthcare.gov, obviously another one. But technology, technology procurement, technology execution, cybersecurity, technology personnel, major issue. And it's one of the things that um, you know, we talked about with our replacements to say, this is going to be an issue that will rise to your attention on a daily basis. 
and as like federal government, we got to catch up with the rest of the society on where they are on what they expect from their technology. You know, right now you can go get your mortgage uh, online. You can do your shopping online, do your banking online. The federal government has got to make sure it's up to snuff on that. We feel like we make good strides on that, principally by bringing on a massive influx of uh, capability and uh, personnel. Also by reforming how we procure major technology buys. But there's still ways to go. And I think the American people are right to expect continued improvement from that, from this federal government. Why has it been so hard for the federal government to, to modernize its basic technological infrastructure? I mean, it's interesting because I've been having this conversation in some cases yep. with you for years. Yes. And it is always fascinating when there is a problem that the leadership of an organization fully believes to be a problem. Nobody thinks that the federal government is up to snuff on technology. And yet for all the strides, and, and I do think things like the US digital service are a real step forward, yeah. Yeah. for all the strides that get made, it continues to be a very vexing problem. And I, I've never quite understood why. What, what would you say is standing between the organization, um, the government, and the, the, you know, not Google, but, you know, just a basic level of technological yeah. competence and, and modern technologies throughout the, throughout the organization. Yeah. One is I think we are, we, we did make good strides. So I agree with you on that. Two is basically you're executing while you're trying to upgrade. And that's always difficult. So if you're Social Security Administration, you're gonna, you got to get the checks out every month. You know, Medicare has got to go every month. And so the challenge is executing while you're upgrading. And in that scenario, there's just not the degree of risk tolerance in the government that there is in the private sector. Because one, governments are always going to be less risk tolerant in the private sector. Two, the impact of tumult in the public sector in something like Social Security Administration, the IRS, you know, HHS, CMS is profound, right? And as a result, risk aversion often is going to trump risk tolerance. Third is personnel. We basically hire and train a set of skills that are on set pieces. The beauty of USDS, which you referenced, the US Digital Service, brings in even more tech talent trained and conversant in more modern technology. And so personnel is a big challenge. Four is Congress, right? You don't make procurement efforts without Congress giving you the money. And Congress oftentimes puts its finger on the scale in terms of what kind of technology you can procure, with whom you can procure it, how you go about procuring it. And so Congress is a big hassle and a big problem, right? If you, you, you want to see a bunch of technology policymakers that are a little bit behind the cutting edge, you, know what I mean? you can go to the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. But at the end of the day, this is what people expect. That's why in those meetings, the president sp spent as much time as he did on it. You know, you, you talked there, practically in the U.S. Digital Service, around talent acquisition. 
And this seems to me to be a real difficulty for the federal government, not at the very top levels. The people who want to serve in the White House, the people who want to serve at the tops of the very tops of agencies are, are often extraordinary. And that's true for both parties. But I have known a lot of very talented people who gave a shot at working within one of the bigger bureaucracies and got very frustrated within a year or two. Tours of service are pretty short. And I know, for instance, U.S. Digital Service, one thing that they were trying to push was one, I mean, just the very idea of it was interesting because you created a separate structure. Yeah that was going to be a little bit more of a techie culture. So techier people could come, feel like they'd be in a home that, that would have folks like them in it, yeah. and they could do tours, right? Yeah. You were not asking them to sign up as a, as a federal worker forever. I'm curious, having sort of worked through some of those problems and, and, and served in government for a long time, how you think about two pieces of this issue. One is, how does a government hire and retain, and also manage, right? Fire, etc. So that it can retain a high performing culture. And the second is how does it deal with the fact that in America, unlike in say a Scandinavian country, working for the federal government is not necessarily a high prestige way to spend your time. If you tell your friends that you're going to Google or you're going to Facebook or even you're going to GE, I think that sounds better than you're going to the Department of Commerce. Mm -hmm. So the second one was not an issue for us. We could get people into the federal government because, look, we could get techies in the federal government because I think the pitch basically makes itself. Mark Grossman, who's senior foreign service officer, a very, very highly decorated foreign service officer, an excellent guy, said to me, you know, he came back into government when we were in the first term to be the special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I asked him about that, about coming back. And he said, you know, when he was out, he was at one of the consulting groups in town here, I forget which one. And he said a lot of young foreign service officers used to come to see him and say, oh, I'm not wild about my next post, or I feel like I'm not really getting great assignments, or I feel like I'm kind of stuck, so I'm thinking about leaving. And he'd say, look, if, if you want to leave, you should leave. If you do, then come see me and we can talk about places you can go. He said, but when you go back to your office today, look around your office and you'll notice one thing, which you won't notice in this office here, which is the flag, the flag of the United States flies in your office. He said, so you have a choice right now, which is you can continue to work for the Foreign Service and go to work every day in an office where you fly the flag. Or you can come out here. And we do interesting stuff, he said, but we don't get to fly the flag. And I thought that's pretty profound. And he said, more overwhelmingly, people went back, kind of renewed. But look, you make an argument to a techie that says, look, here's what you can do. You can get this the ne next Yelp, right? Or you can help us find an ID management system that breaks through such that anybody now who logs on a computer anywhere in the world can prove that he's who he says he is. You know what the, the, the impact of that is going to be in terms of IRS, Social Security Administration, Medicare, you know, CMS, anything, right? And we have the space to create for you and the, the support to create for you, hopefully, the space to get that breakthrough technology. And you'd do, be doing it on, on behalf of Uncle Sam. That argument sells itself. So we didn't have a problem with getting people. And then you think about the tours, the, the, 
the attractiveness of tours. Right now, the federal government eats training costs across the board. We train people up, and then they go work somewhere else in the world. U.S. private sector, somewhere else in the world. So the U.S. taxpayer pays to train that person, and then that person goes away. Classic example, pilot, systems engineers, you know. So the question is, how can we make sure that everybody's sharing this training burden a little bit, but also that people are getting trained on the most recent and experience on the most recent and up-to-date technology. So if somebody's coming into the government for a little bit and going back out, coming back in, I think that's win-win. So then the question becomes, what about the culture of the government? Creates space for these guys to succeed. And this, again, I bring it back to the quarterly meeting. The president routinely would say to a cabinet secretary, who in your building is responsible for making sure that the culture of your building welcomes innovation and creates a space for if one of those techies, a USDS guy, is butting his hat against the same issue time and again, how do you break through? And somebody who's really good at that was Bob McDonald and Sloan Gibson at, at VA. You know, So all of a sudden, my VA ends up being, by the end of the administration, a pretty reasonable tool. It had been languishing for years. It's because he had the technical capacity, and then they, that, ca that capacity had some strength and some swat from the secretary's office that pulled them through roadblocks when they got to them. Lastly, what about performance more generally in the government? This just all gets back to accountability and, and um, specs. If somebody knows what they have to do and knows what you expect, then the average U.S. government personnel is going to hit that target just as well as anybody else. And by the way, it's pretty healthily remunerated. You can make a pretty good salary working for the federal government. So it's on the manager, on the president, to lay out the objective on those of us who work for him to fill in the accountability for that objective or the, the targets for that objective. And then it's up to these guys who are performing on it to meet those marks. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push you a bit on this because I, I have more concerns here. I think there's a lot of truth to all that, and, but it is a rosier view than I've often heard from people coming out. People get burnt out very quick. They feel that around them, low performers are not fired. They're obviously very uh, aggressive service protections in the, in the federal government. Yes. I'm worried in this administration, which I recognize is not something that, that you can control as much, that the brand is going to be very bad. Yes. That I think that Obama himself was a powerful recruiting tool. It's particularly true in a culture like Silicon Valley, but not only true in a mm -hmm. culture like Silicon Valley. I would see again and again really good people. I think of the CFPB, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And when that thing launched, it had just an amazing influx of folks. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that it's not doing a good job now. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not here to, to trash the CFPB, but I was struck by how quickly some of the real high flyers who came in got out. And I saw some other, some things like that happen in the Department of Education. There are places that do seem to hold better. The Foreign Service is actually one of them. State in general seems to me to be one of them. But there does seem, and, I, and, and I'll hear often that the real high performers in some of these cultures feel very, either they have to be put into a little like special place for high performers where they have special protection to do special things, mm -hmm. which you see in big organizations a lot. It's not only an issue of the federal government. 
but that they end up making this calculation that between the bureaucracy and the things they have to deal with, and the, the pay is, it's good pay, but it's often not as good pay as you get out sure. in the private sector, sure. that there are practically certain kinds of jobs that the federal government has trouble being competitive for. And the reason I bring it up in this context is when you combine that with a potential weak brand and weak management structure around the White House, because I'm not persuaded at this point that this White House is has even thought very much about how to manage the overall bureaucracy. If or the if they're deciding that, specifically to... Right. No, I, they I don't trust struck, it. Or, yeah, I was struck by uh, the speeches at CPAC a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. If the talent and the management and the empowerment of these sort of background functions of the government, which to individual people who rely on them are not background at all, languish, the consequences of that, not in ways that will even bubble up into scandal, but just will become pain, seem very real to me. And it feels to me like they're not building off of a culture that is self-protecting and that was even where we wanted it to be a year ago. Yeah. But this feels like a, a dangerous moment for that. What are the factors that like, well, first of all, the kind of empowerment and the kind of management that I'm talking about are full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think we took that very seriously in the White House and we didn't get it all right. But, you know, empowerment is not like you do it on Mondays and then you come back to it the first Monday of every month. Right. You got to be like and you got to have cabinet secretaries who care about this. Sylvia Burwell, unbelievable cabinet secretary, because not only is she going to do her testimony and she's going to innovate on policymaking and not only is she going to execute on the authorities that she has, but she's going to make sure that her building is working well. And she's a manager, not just a policymaker. And when you start making those decisions about who runs these agencies based on the fact that, yeah, management matters, then that will, that, that will impact that. And, that will, and somebody's going to dedicate time to that every day to their, pre their people, keeping them, making sure that they're functioning well, it's going to work. So it's a full-time job. Two, there are a lot of impediments. You didn't name the biggest one, which is Congress, <laughs> right? We shut down in 2013. We're operating under sequester since. They've not passed a series of appropriations bills in years. They do continuing resolutions. This is laughable. And so, yeah, that creates a climate of uncertainty. It creates a climate where all of a sudden, you know, you're going up to the hill and this is not like an interesting policy discussion in a lot of these hearings, but rather what look a lot like kind of political exercises. How much oversight has Congress done on and you know, policy discussion has Congress done on encryption, on cybersecurity, on the tech workforce in the Congress and in the administration. If you were to measure that against the number of hearings on Benghazi, you'd get the answer. So Congress is a big part of it. Three, there are cultural issues in the government that, are, that you have to work every day to overcome. Right? You have to fire non-performers. It's hard, but you have to figure out a way to do it. You have to pull forward high performers. Also hard, but you got to figure out a way to do it. Dan Freed 
uh, career foreign service officer, just retired. Remarkable guy. Remarkable guy. Works through, you know, I've, I think he said the other day, eight presidents. It's got to be high, right? It must be six. All right. All right. So Obama, was he counting Trump? Ob- yeah, Trump, Trump, Obama. Bush, Clinton, Bush, Reagan, Carter. Well, I guess you could do, yeah, Carter, Ford. I think he came in and Carter. All right. So must be seven. So, so Dan Freed's a liar. No, no, I've, no I've got I'm a bad kidding. memory. I'm kidding. <laughs> I've got a bad memory. But this guy is like unbelievable, right? High performer, makes it through. Terrific senior policymaking positions, senior level responsibility, Republican and Democratic administrations. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess your argument is Dan Freed is the exception that proves your rule. I don't know, man. I see a lot of Dan Freeds every day. Or I did. I wouldn't say a Dan Freed is an exception. Okay, I think well, they're both, there are both sides of that. Yeah. So, but look, if you're not being serious about rewarding high performance. But foreign service, I think, is again, it's one of, I'm very fascinated by the parts of the government that have extremely high prestige cultures. Yeah. Which is an important thing. One thing that I think is a real problem is, I mean, look, the Republican Party does its damn best to tell people the government is a more or less bad thing. Not that it has no role. I don't want to caricature their view. But the message is not, and at times the Democratic Party too has has given into this message a bit that working for the government is an honorable thing. You know, I think here, Newt Gingrich, right, made this whole thing that if members of Congress brought their families to town, they were going to Washington and going to Washington was a bad thing. I hear all the time, All I give speeches at, at colleges, and I would say at almost every speech I give, somebody gets up and says, the two things people want to have that they think would solve our problems are campaign finance reform and term limits. Everybody thinks a huge problem is term limits, yeah. that if we just got these more experienced people out, which is not how you think about any other organization, it would be better because if there's something corrupting about being in government. Yeah. And there are places that have been able to, to fight that. I mean, foreign service, people dream of working in the foreign service. Yeah. It's an interesting question whether and what you would need to do to make that true for, for other parts of the government. Yeah. Look, I, I, you know, the, we, the president talked about this in his uh, farewell address, but we, we used to talk a lot about when, in fact, we had these stickers that we carried around that said you got to fight cynicism. And look... I live in Maryland. I don't live in Washington, but it's basically the Washington metro area. The Republicans run this city. They own it. Let's see what they do with it. I played for a lot of great coaches in my life. I never heard a coach who thought it was okay when you explained to him why when you missed a tackle or missed a play, that is somebody else's fault. All right? This is like... That's all you hear in the last six weeks. All the reasons why they aren't doing what they said they would do. Come on, fellas, let's buck up and get in the game. I know what that means. Washington doesn't do this. or Washington. You guys own Washington. You run the whole thing. Get on with it. Well, I think on healthcare, to some degree, they're trying. It's move, moving fast now, but I, I worry by the time this comes out, that will prove... <laughs> If we go too deep in that, we'll, we'll be overtaken by Vince. Let me ask no, you about— No, I, I, yeah. I bring it back again to—if that's true, and it's probably true, mm-hmm. because basically we've been the party of ideas now for uh, the last decade. They've been the party of doing nothing. 
they're basically running this as a political exercise. And they're really good at that. And so my guess is they'll whip their guys into line and everybody will be for this. And then the, then the question is going to be, what's the impact on the American people and the economy? So you, you, you think this will pass? I've seen too many times where these guys all give in to what is the party line rather than fighting on the basis of what's best for their states or their, their districts or uh, for people in those states and districts. And so that's what I've seen. One of the lessons I took from last X number of years is I don't think there are huge electoral consequences to opposing irresponsibly. I don't think the American people punish you, and this is true, Democrat or Republican, for not having good ideas of your own or for not trying to honestly work on something or for even shutting down the government necessarily. Do you think that there are electoral consequences for governing irresponsibly? I, you know, I do. I, I have to believe that. That's what the system is based on. And, you know, time will tell. Is it something that you guys felt? Definitely. Definitely. If you look at the, uh, you know, the, we, we did uh, big and important things, hard things, in those first two years. And the president knew that it was going to be hard. And a lot of the people who voted for things like the Affordable Care Act knew that it was going to be hard. And they all said, you know, if that's what this is, then so be it, right? Because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, 24 million people later, uh, the fact that healthcare costs are growing at, you know, rates lower than ever since we started recording them. I think the data is pretty good on that. I'm optimistic about these institutions, man. I mean, the... the Got to fight cynicism. Got to. <laughs> and it's pretty easy when you see some of the people that you see every day when you're working in the government. The argument against it is a caricature. The people in the government in the main are hardworking, patriotic people who are, who are in there and could be making a lot more money in a lot of other places, mm -hmm. you know? And this is, uh, you know, my wife wrote a very nice column, I thought, for the Huffington Post about two months ago, just as we were leaving, to say, let me tell you what I saw as somebody who saw a lot of this experience for eight years through my kids' eyes. Hmm. And I'll tell you what my kids saw. You know, trips to uh, uh, Fort Myer, uh, Joint Base Henderson, seeing the Secret Service, seeing even members of Congress trying to do the right thing, seeing park rangers in the Park Service, either on the White House grounds or elsewhere, on the mall, seeing Foreign Service officers, seeing our troopers. You know, the what our kids witnessed were people trying to do the right thing every day. And that's happening all through this town right now this morning. Um, and that should give people some some optimism. I think the reason I, I push on some of this stuff is something that I have been thinking about is the Obama administration was a unusually technocratic administration. The way in which information was processed, the way people thought, the things President Obama himself read, the, the kinds yeah. of thinkers he liked, yeah. it was a very technocratic space. And it has been followed in a way that is interesting by the least technocratic administration I think we have had, certainly in memory. George W. Bush's administration, for all the, the liberals, gave him shit for using the wrong word. Here and again, it was a disciplined 
governmental organization. Yeah. I think it did a lot of things wrong, but it was, you yeah, know, it, totally. it, it came in and it, it worked by some of the normal rules. And I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm curious if you have a view of why that happened, why American history took this turn at this moment. Hmm. I don't. I mean, this is this is what everybody's wrestling with, right? And, and but, well, I, I don't. I, I haven't come to any firm conclusions on that. And I, I think the risk is that we lose sight of the things that do make American America exceptional, right? What are the things that make us unique and exceptional? On you know, three branches co-equal, each of them keeping an eye on the other. Uh, free press with that. Um, as President uh, Bush 43 said, is designed to hold people like him to account. Non-political law enforcement, non-political investigative authority. Those are the attributes that make America exceptional. And uh, that means that the institutions gotta, gotta, each got to do their role now. And you see pieces, you know, see bits and pieces of it. And we'll what, see do, what, happens. what do you think about Congress as an institution, not just at this second, but over, you know, the last couple of cycles? There is an argument that, that I, I find persuasive that uh, the American government was built to have this competition between institutions, institutions totally. that were supposed to themselves be power hungry, right? They would want their turf. Totally. And... The idea at that time, which was obviously proven wrong very fast, was that there wouldn't be parties. So it'd just be this competition between institutions. And then parties evolved very quickly. And now what you have is competition between parties across institutions. And that as part of that, Congress itself has just become a much weakened organization. It doesn't do things as Congress or very few things as Congress. It is in support of the president. It's in opposition to the president. It is divided over the president. But given its power, given what you would just expect to happen if all you did was read a document explaining how the federal government works, given that Congress can act really on its own and the president, for the most part, and trying to do big things cannot, you would not expect Congress to take as much of a backseat as it does or be as re responsive to... In, for good or for bad, for support or for opposition to the president as it is. This always seems to me to be a real point of, at this point, vulnerability in the system. I ascribe to the school of thought that you just laid out, namely that, uh, you know, I think if you read the Constitution, the powers are overlapping. The best, I think, in my view, best example of that in my view is the war power. You know? Article 1 has Congress making and raising armies, declaring war. Article 2 has the president as commander-in-chief, but apparently a commander-in-chief who relies on Congress to declare war. But the thing with the power, so those powers are overlapping to invite, you know, there's a very good book about this, which is called In Invitation to Struggle, which I think is correct, right? That's the beauty of the, of the document, is it kind of throws the issue in the middle and forces them all to fight for it. And I think that's good. The problem is that the the authorities and the powers are not self-executing. Somebody has to take and make them work, which always strikes me as so curious about the Syria debate, where we are routinely criticized for not enforcing the red line by a group of people who asked us not to make them vote 
on whether to enforce the red line. I look back at a person like Lee Hamilton or I look at somebody like Dianne Feinstein. They guard those powers jealously, man. They would not volunteer those powers to anybody, Republican or Democrat, and never did. We had some of our most, like it's, it's obviously in the press, some of, some of my most heated exchanges with senators were with Dianne Feinstein, who's a friend. I look forward to your memoir, Some of My Most Heated Exchanges by yeah. Dennis McDonough. Yeah, there you go. Heated exchanges I have known. That's right. That's right. Heated exchanges that were undertaken by... I'll find some passive way to, to present them. Yeah, just, you'll just be waiting a long time. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be waiting a long time for my memoir, by the way. So I agree with you. And I mean, look, it goes to the base case, right, for Congress, which is the, their most profound power, aside from oversight, right, which they seem to be wrestling with at the moment. The power of the purse. It is astounding to me that they keep writing these continuing resolutions and omnibus bills and all this stuff for the last, really since 2010. You, you aspire to run for Congress. You run at one of these committees. You get a chance to write up a bill that will fund a particular set of agencies for a year. And you can't get it done because nobody wants to do any hard things. So... As an institution, I think it's, in, it's, it's great. It's unique in the world. Our institutional structure is unique in the world. I think Congress is an amazing place. To have worked there was, be, was hugely beneficial and really interesting and fun. But they got to start executing their authorities, man, or somebody would just take them. Because that's a problem. Since it's not self-executing, then it doesn't... No, nobody's going to... When there's a fight for this, you know... Whoever's fighting for it will get it. That, that point about taking them, I think, is interesting. A theory that I believe strongly and have written about a number of times and that I think is criminally under-recognized. I say that gridlock, paralysis is not a good metaphor for what happens when Congress freezes. And gridlock kind of is. But the thing that happens when there's gridlock, because I'm from south of L.A., is that you begin driving weird, shitty side street routes. Things happen. People get places, but it's inefficient. Yes. And that as Congress freezes, sometimes it passively allows the executive to, to take on authority. If the executive is doing something that the majority or a blocking minority wanted to do in Congress, I think that some of the Obama administration executive actions reflected things like that, um, like the EPA actions. Sometimes the Supreme Court ends up taking the authority when the Supreme Court makes a controversial ruling and then says, hey, Congress can go back and change us, but Congress can't. And I think what people think happens when Congress freezes is things don't get done. And that, that is true. But there's a large category of things that get done in very inefficient ways by actors who don't have the powers Congress had to pursue a first best solution. And so have to end up using executive authority, ju judicial authority, um, workarounds, waivers, to pursue third best, fourth best, fifth best solutions. I want to dispute one thing, which is I think the EPA actions are entirely envisioned in the, the Clean Air Act. And, and so I think that, you know, this is an issue that's still before the courts, but I, our argument is not that we did it because Congress wouldn't. Our argument is that we did it because the president had the authority to do it and the fate of the planet, the strength of the economy, and opportunities for and, and the health of 
young kids who are experiencing allergies and asthma at a rate heretofore not seen because of carbon pollution. This is something the president had to do. Yeah, my, my, so, I, I take your point. My point on that is a bit different. That but I Democrats the, wanted to do a cap-and-trade bill, right? They want to do something holistic. Well, Republicans did a cap-and-trade bill on socks, on sulfur oxide. Yes. You know, 25 but in, years in ago. in 2009, 2010. So we, we, decide, we thought yeah. that maybe that would be a, a Republican idea for the biggest right. issue facing the planet would be a good one for people. Right. To no, I don't, I don't mean to litigate the issue itself, but yeah. to say that... I think there was a solution that Democrats wanted to create that was holistic. Yeah. Then Republicans, if it had been up to them, would have just stopped you all from doing anything. Right. When Congress just was not able to do anything, then the executive could act. Right. But it wasn't the first best. It wasn't anybody's first best. It might have been what the law needed, but it would have been good to be able to pass the stuff you guys had in your OA so, plan. So I, so I think your, your argument, notwithstanding, I, I just wanted to yeah, make a I specific point about the Clean Air Act, which I think is this is... Republican passed, Nixon signed, important piece of legislation, uh, statute that envisioned the kind of action that we're undertaking now, or we had been undertaking, full stop. Nevertheless, your argument, I think, is still profound and right. And the example I would give you is talk to any of the chiefs of the armed forces about what happens with continuing resolutions. They get to the end of the year. And because they can't start new start investments when they're operating under a continuing resolution, they get to the end of the year. They weren't able to buy the things that they needed when the year started, but they have a bunch of money that they have to spend before the end of the year or they'll lose it. So what do they do? They invest, they spend the money on stuff that is a second or third order priority, not a first order priority. And that's deep in the side streets of, you know, Los Angeles County or whatever it is, right, when the gridlock deliberate, and that's the sequester too, right? The deliberate gridlock, which is a policy choice, ends up forcing you onto those side streets. You waste money on things that are second or third order investments, and then you can't invest on first order investments. And that's bad policy. And that's bad for the national interest. So I'm going to jump around now and ask you just some questions about random topics. I'm interested okay. to hear you out on. You came into contact in your time in, in government with a lot of foreign leaders. I'm curious who are the, the foreign leaders who you thought were really effective, were really capable on the world stage, whether the ones who are in power now or not. Yeah. You know, so I guess I, I'll start with a with a disclaimer, which is to say I didn't come into contact with that many foreign leaders. I, I basically was the deputy national security advisor and, you know, you're just in the sit room all day uh, talking to your deputy colleagues who are a great bunch of people and still really good friends. So it's not that I didn't like that. It just meant you weren't on these highfalutin foreign trips. And then when I was chief, obviously, Susan, we had an excellent from Tom to Susan. We had two great national security advisors. So they did they did that work. Nevertheless, I witnessed what I witnessed. And, you know, I think that Chancellor Merkel is a very interesting leader and very effective leader. What, what about her makes her interesting? That she's, a, she's taken on difficult issues, the refugee issue being the biggest and most interesting one, but not the only one, you know. I thought the way she's handled issues like nuclear energy in Germany, 
has been very effective. The way she's been able to balance uh, a fairly fractious relationship with the CSU, uh, which is uh, you know kind of a separate party that uh, is partnered with her, and it's a party from the more conservative part of the country, the, uh, from Bavaria. The way she's been able to balance that as against approaching things like greater financial stability in the EU, you know, to include Greece and Italy and Spain and uh, other lower performing, less stable countries over the last several years, refugee policy. Um, so I think she's been really interesting. I think Prime Minister Abe has been remarkably effective, notwithstanding a very tumultuous not very tumultuous, notwithstanding a, a dynamic political environment in Japan, you know, in the, over the last couple of decades. He was in, went out, came back in, and has been pretty, pretty strong as a result. You know, I think the biggest surprise is somebody like Erdogan, who I, you know, in 2009 and 2010 seemed to be doing a lot of interesting things, but has taken a uh, turn toward uh, authoritarianism, which is remarkable. But those are a couple of examples I'd use. How hair on fire are you about Russia right now? I'm not hair on fire about Russia. I, I'm, I'm eyes wide open about it, which is to say that Russia sees its path to a return to what it considers its formal greatness to pass through a reduction in our stature. That is to say, I think the Russians see a zero-sum game between us and them. If they want to advance, they have to advance at our cost. And that's very dangerous. And so I'm eyes wide open about that. I think we have been eyes wide open about that since the return of President Putin. And I think as a government and as a country, we should be eyes wide open about that. So if we're able to structure things where we can work together with the Russians. By the way, I think the best argument on this is laid out by Bill Burns in the New York Times about a month ago. Uh, very it, typical Bill Burnsian fashion, very straightforward, not emotional, but I think hugely compelling. If we can structure ways that we can find win-wins with them in Syria or elsewhere, great. But I think we need to be eyes wide open about what their goal is, which is their goal is that their advancement comes at our uh, detraction and and um, if we're not eyes wide open about that, then then that will be problematic. Do you see the pattern of contacts that has emerged between people in Trump world and and Russia as is there a innocuous explanation set for that? I'm not going to try to explain it one way or the other, or even say that there's a pattern or not a pattern. I I just think that we said what we had to say on this one uh, in terms of, uh, you know, generating the report that uh, was generated before we left. And, you know, as Bob Gates used to say, uh, he would tell everybody when they left the CIA the day that you leave, you're no longer current. And so I consider myself no longer current on this. So one of the things that I think Donald Trump made me update my priors on was that he really did not have a campaign as we normally think about it. He did not have a ground operation as we normally think about it. And and up to the very end of the election, I was saying, you know what? Hillary Clinton is probably going to outperform the polls. 
because the polls assume, you know, two campaigns of roughly equal competence. And, you know, that's obviously not what happened. And so one thing that I have really wondered in the aftermath of that was, how much does a campaign really matter? And one reason I find myself checking my instincts on what Trump is doing is it has made me wonder, well, if a campaign doesn't matter, does running the government matter? Does having people in place in these positions matter? And I'm, I'm curious your reaction to that. You've been, you've been around these things. Is that analogy a kind of election post-traumatic stress disorder masquerading as assessment? Or is there something to that? I don't think there's anything to it. I think that the importance of the campaign is that it shows the candidate running something big. You know, it's a big operation. And it also shows uh, the candidate, you know, under pressure. And it's, it's now so long and so hot that I think the voters get a good sense of who the person is. The difference between that and governance and why I, I don't ascribe to this potentially troubling theory is that these are consequential decisions that impact people's lives that the president makes every day. Dozens and dozens of decisions every day. By the way, he needs to know when he's making decisions, right? Uh, that's the first, you know, when you're putting off a question, you're, you're, you're deciding to put off a question. That's right? an interesting point. The reason that, you know, in effect, you're playing with real money then when you're in the Oval Office and making the decisions. And people's lives and livelihood and families are impacted by those decisions. And so the decision on a vote is a little more esoteric, right? It's, it's or a little more distant. That is to say that the impact of that decision is not obvious for several years because you don't know exactly what the, the outcome of this particular leader's decisions are going to be. But any individual decision, once you're in there, people are starting to feel it. And so I think the flash to bang is faster and more consequential. So, so there's a different kind of feedback mechanism there. Yes. That you can maybe run a campaign even successfully without the campaign itself being that good because you did a good job on you know, the media and, and other things that, that reached people. But if you're making, if you end up with a bad healthcare bill, or you don't keep the country safe. That stuff is harder to yeah harder I think, to explain I think, away. I think, I think so. I think so. Who are the folks who you disagree with? Who you make a point to read, listen to, watch? Hmm. Well, I read uh, Russ Duhat, obviously. Another person who I think is really interesting. Uh, and he's a reporter, but uh, he also does some opinion work as a guy named John Ward at Yahoo. I think he's very interesting. I also make it a priority to try to stay in touch with my Republican friends, try to have coffee on a very regular basis with a handful of Republican friends. I have done that really since I went into the White House where I found that if I weren't deliberate about reaching out to Republicans, that it wouldn't happen naturally because just the hours you work there, and you know, you're basically running around in that building all day, particularly when you're in the NSC, you know, because you're just in skiffs all day. That served me well. And then, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm constantly looking at what uh, the speaker is saying. I find him to be 
interesting in terms of what he what he says and what he writes. So I try to read that stuff. What are the issues that if you could shift the priority ranking in American politics, you don't have to put anything down, but what are the issues that you wish you could raise their salience, that you could get people to talk about more, see them as more of a danger, more of an opportunity, just put them a little bit more at the front of the agenda? One is tech policy. And by that, I mean everything from technology procurement, the government, to training the next generation of tech leaders, um, technicians. I think an issue that is now closer to the top of the agenda than it was, and this is one of the things I'll be spending a big amount of my own time on going forward, is this issue of what's the future for workers in this age of automation. So I'm working on this project with the Marco Foundation that seeks to, through a program called Skillful, try to make sure that we're getting to a skills-based labor market, particularly for what we call middle-skilled workers. So perhaps, you know, high school graduates or community college graduates. What are the skills that they need and where can they get them so that they can then get the jobs that need those skills? There's a big mismatch right now between open jobs and the skills they need and potential employees who don't recognize that either A, they already have the skills that these jobs need, but there's some kind of cultural barrier bef- between them and to getting a job or don't know how to go get the skills that are needed in this job. And so right now there's a big kind of esoteric debate about automation and artificial intelligence about the aggregate number of jobs. Are we on the verge of, you know, an historic moment where all of a sudden there's going to be fewer jobs because there's more robots? I'm I'm past that question. I don't believe there's going to be fewer jobs. I do think, though, that the jobs that there are, and there will be plenty, are going to need new skills. And we have to figure out this question to get to that. So Washington has to kind of quit debating this big question, uh, kind of more esoteric, as I say, question about aggregate number of jobs and start saying, okay, what are the skills that people need and how are we going to get those skills to those people to make sure that they fill the jobs that there will be? And then the last is just, it's not civility that I worry about. It's the kind of the lack of attention to performance and competence in our institutions. And this kind of covers the like, kind of the first and last questions you raised in our last little segment there. The first one being, what does the president do? And the last one being, well, what about, are we on the verge of some kind of crisis constitutionally if the institutions aren't doing their jobs? I wish there were more of that, you know, maybe that would, maybe the answer to that is to drain the politics out of, or maybe you need more politics. I don't know. But I sure wish Washington recognizes that it's not meeting the expectations of the average citizen. But I also wish that Washington understood that Washington is what it is, which is Republicans and Democrats. And um, until they competently address these problems, we're going to continue to be in this kind of whirly, swirly, whirly world that we're in. What's the best piece of advice you got working in government? The best piece of advice I got from I heard I don't know if he's really giving out advice, but I was uh, able to meet with uh, Coach K one night, and I went into the meeting 
I'm not expecting to be a fan. All right. But he said Who is Coach K for us non-sports uh, people? Mike Krzyzewski, who's the coach of Duke, basketball coach at Duke. And he said something interesting. He said, you know, the thing I really like about coaching the U.S. Olympic men's team is how much I get to learn. I thought that was interesting. And I said, and he said, you know, I don't need to like get LeBron into shape. LeBron knows how to get himself into shape. So it's not like they're running suicide drills and jump rope and stuff like that. They're, they're taking care of that. So he's basically working on strategy and motivation and management with these guys. He said, so what happens is I get to coach this team and I learn from these guys the whole time that I'm coaching. He said, I could otherwise live a very happy life coaching Duke, running basketball camps. He said, but what I uh, find by having this additional assignment, which he's now announced he's retiring from, I have an opportunity to learn and learn from the best. He said, so I ask myself every day, where am I learning today? And I thought to myself, if Coach K thinks after all he's done that he still needs to learn every day, then I think I better be learning every day, you know? And so uh, I ended up putting a little note on my desk that said, where, what are you learning today and where are you learning today? You know, and this goes back to the attributes I think of a good, a good president, right? Not making a decision based on my gut instinct, right? I'm making a decision based on experience and data and argumentation and debate, you know, and our best presidents have done that. Speaking of learning, this will be the last question. You're a big reader. What are some books you recommend? What are the books you recommend most to people? Uh, that's interesting. Well, I, I, rec I recommend this Grant book, which I'm reading right now. I thought uh, Ike's Bluff of a couple years ago is a great policymaker, policymaker's review. Nonfiction, Evan Thomas. And I happen to be reading it when I took over chief staff's job. And basically you're reminded in there what Eisenhower said, which is uh, something like plans are nothing, but planning is everything. A version of that is no plan survives first contact. But if you're working with your teammates to plan, you know that when the shit hit the, hits the fan, you've already worked with this group You've anticipated some of these possibilities. But more than anything, you trust each other and you have a structure in place to then plan once the shit hits the fan. And one thing I do know is that every day in these jobs, you know, a lot of it hits the fan. And so that's a good book. Dennis McDonough, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Ezra. Thank you to Dennis McDonough for taking the time and, and being here today. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week.